You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Ulster Bank is to withdraw from the market in the Republic of Ireland. The bank, which has 188 branches and more than a million customers, currently employs 2,800 people. Joining us now on the line is the bank's chief executive, Jane Howard. Good morning. Good morning and thank you for having me this morning. Why has this decision been taken now? So, look, there's never a good time to um, deliver news like this. And I understand that it's extremely disappointing news for both um, customers and colleagues. But now that the decision has been made, um, my focus and our focus will be on making sure that we um, complete this phased withdrawal over a number of years in an orderly fashion so that we do a good job for both customers and colleagues. Um, And what's really important um, for today, for any customers listening, there's no change right now. We're continuing to offer a full banking service. Um, No branches will be closing this year. Um, They don't need to take any action, and we'll be starting to communicate with our customers today. And when you say a phased withdrawal over a number of years, how many years? So I, I don't want to be um, precise because um, I think it's, it's unhelpful if I start speculating, but, but it is going to be a number of years. You must have some idea, though. Well, I think these things take time, uh, and we've seen that from the past. You know, so you'll have seen as well that we've announced um, that we've reached a memorandum of understanding with AIB for them to acquire a significant part of the performing commercial loan book. And we've also announced that we are in early discussions with permanent CSB as well as other full-service banks. So, you know, those um, discussions are at the stages they're at. There's a lot of complexity to work through. But as we work through that, that will dictate and inform the number of years. And that's why I said I don't think it's helpful for me to speculate. But, But the important message is, you know, it is going to be a number of years. And therefore, we've got time to support our customers carefully to transition to a new bank. This has been an incredibly difficult time, as you know, for the bank's employees who've been waiting for news, waiting for confirmation since last September. Have they been treated badly? Yeah, so look, I'm I'm acutely aware of how colleagues have been feeling and how difficult this has been for them. Nobody would have wanted this communicated in the way it was. And I've met and spoken to many colleagues during this uncertain time. So I do know how they've been feeling. Uh, the, The thing today is we've now got the decision. So I can talk and listen to colleagues today in the coming weeks, months and years uh, and support them. And also we will be engaging fully with the representative bodies because we've both got the same objective, which is to minimise job losses wherever we can and then to support colleagues where we can't. What will you do then to ensure that the maximum number of jobs are transferred with loans, if loans are indeed bought by the AIB, permanent TSB or indeed anybody else? Yeah, so as I say, you know, there's a lot of detail to work through, but one of our priorities is to minimise job losses. So in any negotiations, we'll be looking to make sure that colleagues who um, are, are actively engaged in any part of the business transfer with it. Right, and you can, you can assure them of that today? What I can assure them of is that in any negotiations, that is going to be a primary consideration. And as far as you're aware at the moment, are AIB and permanent TSB, are they amenable to that? 
So where we are with um, AIB, we've reached um, a memorandum of understanding, so we've got exclusive rights with them. And certainly it is um, a clear agreement between us in those negotiations that all the colleagues that support that um, commercial loan but would transfer. You're also in discussions with permanent TSB. What part of the business are these discussions focusing on? Yes, yeah, so with permanent TSB and as well as other full service banks, uh, actually, um, the, the, their interest is in our small business and also our retail bank. Um, and when I talk about our retail bank, again, all the detail needs to be worked through, but, but that's broadly um, what we're talking about. And when you say other full service banks, what, what sort of institutions are you talking about? I'm, I'm not going to name any names, but um, there aren't that many in the Republic of Ireland. But, um, you know, we're, we're in discussions, as we say, with permanent TSB, but also with others. Customers, though, will be worried. In particular, mortgage holders may be concerned about reports that loans could be bought by investment funds. Do you have any reassurance for them? Yeah, so for our customers, look, uh, the first thing that's really important is there's no change right now and nobody needs to take any action. And our priority and our preference is absolutely to work with um, the full service banks. And that's why we've announced the Memorandum of Understanding this morning and the discussions that we're in with permanent TSB and others. So that is absolutely our preference and our priority. It's your preference and your priority, but it might not end up being the case. I mean, if it doesn't work out that way, there's every danger, isn't there, that the loans could go elsewhere? Look, look, as I've said, we've got a preference and a priority in the fact that we have reached um, one memorandum of understanding and also in discussions with other um, with other banks, you know, that's the priority. We need to let those um, discussions work through and if and as and when they reach conclusions, then we'll announce that to customers, colleagues in the market. People with deposits will also be concerned this morning because, you know, these are, these are strange times. We're in a time of negative interest rates. What would you say to people who have money with the Ulster Bank and, and are worried about where that might end up? Yeah, again, um, there's no need for anybody to take action right now. Um, everything is business as usual and we'll continue to support our customers in exactly the way we have been. Uh, look, it, um, I don't see that there won't be demand for, for the deposits, but you know, let's work through the conversations that we're having and once we reach conclusions, then we will be communicating that to customers, colleagues and, and the market. Have you discussed the decision to withdraw from the Republic of Ireland with the Minister for Finance? Um, I think that the Minister has made it clear on um, a number of occasions that this is a commercial decision for NatWest. Um, uh, we've contacted the Minister this morning and I'll be talking to him later on. So there haven't been any discussions since last September when this story first hit the news? Um, so we have kept the Minister up to date, just at um, a high level to say the strategic review is ongoing. But as I say, you know, the Minister's made it clear that this is a commercial decision for NatWest. And so I the, will be meeting him later on today. So the government didn't in intervene in any way? It didn't put any pressure on you? No, as I say, this is a commercial decision for NatWest. Uh, now that we've got the decision, my focus, my priority, my energy is all going into making sure that we manage this withdrawal on a phased basis over a number of years in an orderly fashion, carefully and in a considered way for both customers and colleagues.
We've been focusing in particular on the business in the South, obviously, but is Ulster Bank's business in the North affected in any way by this? No, this, is, this doesn't impact uh, Ulster Bank in the North. And for any employees there this morning who were worried that something similar may be coming down the tracks, what would you say to them? Look, um, what we've announced today is for uh, Ulster Bank in the Republic of Ireland. Now, I do have some colleagues in the north. They, they'll know who they are and we'll be looking after them and communicating with them later today. But this is about Ulster Bank in the Republic of Ireland. Jane Howard, Chief Executive of Ulster Bank. Thank you for joining us on Morning Ireland. What happens when a government takes on a global social media giant? That's the situation in Australia right now, where the government is bringing in new laws to make social media companies pay for news on their platforms, and Facebook has reacted swiftly and strongly. Zoe Samios, media reporter with the Sydney Morning Herald, has more on this story. And Zoe, it's a case of Facebook unfriending Australia, is it? Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. We woke up here in Australia this morning to find that not only were news articles from my own publication missing, but every single news article in the world was missing from every Australian user's uh, homepages or, or news feeds. And there was a little bit of a stuff up as well. So we actually woke up to, to Facebook almost misinterpreting what news was. Uh, we had the Department of Queensland Health, the Queensland Department of Health, um, the Victorian Department of Health, all those sites went down to all the pages. So we went, we went into a situation where not only did you not have news articles, but you didn't have information on the coronavirus pandemic when we woke up as well. So that was pretty interesting. Now, these new laws uh, haven't uh, been actually passed yet. Uh, and Facebook's reaction at the moment is, if you want us to pay, well, we'll just take it away. Where does this go? Look, it's really hard to say. So what happened here overnight was the House of Representatives passed the legislation. It now has to go to the Senate and they're hoping to pass the laws by next week. I think what the Facebook chief executive, Mark Zuckerberg, was planning to do was to take all this content to send a message to the local government here and say, hey, look what we can do if you don't cooperate. Mm -hmm. From what I've been told today, the politicians aren't buying into that at all and they've said they're going to legislate next week. So we're actually looking at a situation now here where we may never have news content back on our uh, Facebook platform um, indefinitely. Uh, it's, it's a really unusual situation. They've never done anything like this anywhere in the world. So we're kind of in unprecedented territory. And it's interesting, isn't it, given that there are moves elsewhere, even at EU level, to change uh, the regulations, to change the funding model with social media companies, big ones like Facebook. Yeah, I mean, look, everywhere in the world has been uh, certainly trying to regulate these tech giants. It seems to be that Australia has come up with some sort of solution that almost pigeonholes them into to paying for news content on their platforms. And I know that lots of governments all over the world have been watching this carefully. Um, I just think it's it's what, what's happened in Australia overnight is really a sign probably that the legislation here is going to serve its purpose. But yeah, it's it's been quite amazing to see what's happened in the last sort of 12 months, particularly with cracking down on these powerful platforms. All right. All right, thank you very much indeed for joining us with that. Zoe Samios there, media reporter with the Sydney Morning Herald. 
As we've been hearing this morning, legislation for mandatory quarantining in hotels will be discussed by Cabinet later this morning. Passengers arriving from particularly high-risk countries will have to spend 14 days in a hotel room. The expected cost is around €2,000 per adult, which they would have to pay. Our reporter Fiekra Okyona is here with more details. So Fiekra, mandatory hotel quarantine, how does it work? Well, in basic terms, mandatory hotel quarantine means anyone who travels into a country from designated countries will legally have to quarantine in a guarded hotel for up to 14 days to stop the spread of COVID-19. During that time, they'll be ordered not to leave their rooms, will have to take several PCR tests to check for COVID and will have to pay thousands of euro, as you said, for the hotel stay. Ireland backed away from uh, such measures last year, but other countries, including New Zealand and Australia, took it on. And they've had varying degrees of success with it over the past few months. Now, in Australia, um, the policy has been credited with allowing life to largely return to normal. Uh, sorry, in New Zealand, it's it's been credited with allowing life to largely return to normal, whereas in Australia, it's not been a complete success, with an 800-debt second wave in Victoria State last summer linked to poor hotel security at quarantine hotels. But the policy is still in use in Australia, including by Seanine Sullivan, an Irish-Australian dual national who's facing her fourth day in mandatory hotel quarantine this morning after travelling back to Perth from Dublin for family reasons over the weekend. A short time ago, Seanine told me about her experience, saying reality hit home when she was placed on an isolated police-escorted bus after landing at the airport. When I was imagining it um, happening, I sort of thought we'd be going through the normal immigration channels and going out the front of the terminal. My mum was like, oh, you know, maybe we can come and wave at you. But like you actually go airside, you know, so you're going back out the back of the terminal onto these buses. And yeah, we, there were um, eight people per bus and we loaded all of our own luggage on. Um, you have to keep everything separate. And we had a police escort, so um, a police car in front and behind. So a police car in front and behind, no messing about on arrival there in Australia. And Seanian also told me that that, that safety first mandatory hotel, hotel quarantine system continued when she reached the hotel. It was members of the army and the um, West Australian police force downstairs at the hotel. You get checked in. Um, we lined up waiting to um, go up in the service elevator. The security card works once to open the door um, and then that's it. We go into the room and then, you know, the we're, the only people we'll see for the next 14 days um, are the public health nurses that are doing our COVID tests. It's, kind of, it's, it's quite surreal. Like, it's a lovely hotel, but, you know, at the same time, it is very different from staying here as the before COVID times. So it was 35 degrees here today and there is air conditioning in the room, but um, there's a pool that we can see which actually directly underneath our window. So um, it's a bit tantalising kind of looking down and you can see it and you're like, oh, we could almost dive in. But like, yeah, we're not allowed to use any of the facilities. You know, it really is when the door closes, you know, that's it. You're, you're in the room. Seanine O'Sullivan there. Closer to home for the UK started its hotel quarantine system yesterday. Yes, that's right. In the UK, people required to enter the quarantine hotel programme must enter England or Scotland through a designated airport and have pre-booked a package to stay at one of the government's managed facilities. Those facilities are in Heathrow, Gatwick, London City, Farnborough, Birmingham, Aberdeen, Edinburgh and Glasgow. No flights from outside the UK are currently operating to Wales or Northern Ireland and Sky News correspondent Enda Brady has been telling me more. They've got 
around 5,000 hotel rooms booked already. And the plan would be that the arriving passengers, they will pay for their own hotel quarantine, £1,750 for the 10 days and 10 nights. And that takes in their food and also the cost of security at the hotel. They'll be tested for COVID on day two, and they will again be tested on day eight. Food will be brought to your door and you will be allowed out once a day for exercise or a, a cigarette break or something like that. That's Ender Brady there. The, the system only up and running since yesterday, Fiacre, as we said, but already some details of it has been criticised. Yes, the GMB union representing airport workers in the UK say they're worried passengers arriving from the UK's 33 designated high-risk countries for COVID-19 are freely mixing in airports with travellers from other countries at the airport before entering quarantine. And obviously that's a potential safety issue. And the Australian and New Zealand models of quarantine, which are seen by many as an example to follow, are also not without their own critics. Both Both countries are reviewing their quarantine rules with a view to strengthening them after domestic criticism over security lapses. In November, in particular, the Australian state of Victoria carried out a review into failings in their quarantine system and it concluded containment uh, breaches in their hotel quarantine system had devastating consequences and contributed to hundreds of lives being lost. In response, some officials in Australia have even suggested moving some quarantine facilities away from dense urban populations to remote outback locations. So what about here then? What can we expect? Well, later today, in a couple of hours' time, Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly will bring new primary legislation to Cabinet, seeking to introduce a similar system to Australia and the UK here. If it's agreed by Cabinet, I understand Government will seek to put it to the doll on Thursday, to the Cabinet, or to the Shannon next Friday, and potentially to have it signed into law in the first week of March. The Irish Bill doesn't state the number of hotels or rooms needed. This is because demand will be based on how many people are travelling to Ireland from our own high-risk variant list, which currently stands at about 20 countries, and because a deal is needed with hotels to convince them to take on the role for what one source told me could be a role for up to up to 12 months. I understand less than 10 hotels are likely to be used in the end and most will be in Dublin and if hotels are not made available other sites may be considered. 14 days quarantine is expected to cost someone almost €2,000 but operational details have yet to be finalised. Meanwhile Irish citizens returning from Covid variant hotspots can't skip the measure simply by showing their Irish passport and the complaint system will be introduced if problems occur. And how long will these powers stay in place? Well, that's the bad news, unfortunately. I understand in the legislation there's no sunset clause or end date in the new bill. What that means in basic terms is if this law, if this bill becomes law, mandatory hotel quarantine may be with us for some time to come. OK, Fiacre, many thanks indeed. And as we know, the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines for over 85s is getting underway this week. One recipient, 85-year-old Eileen McCoy, she was first in line for the vaccine at the Black Rock Hall Medical Centre in Cork yesterday. And she told our reporter Killian Sherlock about the moment she got the date for her appointment. The week before the doctor's surgery, the um, receptionist rang and she said, we, we had hoped to get it last week. And she said, I'm sorry, we'll be disappointing, but when we do get it, you'll, you'll be contacted. So she rang me on Saturday and she said, good news. She said, we're getting it on Monday and um, we'll be able to um, start on Tuesday morning. And you were first in line. Can you tell us what happened? 
I was actually. I was, well, the the there was a doctor and a nurse. So I went to the nurse, and she said, "You're the first I'm doing this morning." And um, she was exceptionally nice, and um, they, they were all very nice, very professional, you know. And there was no, there was every everything was relaxed down there. My daughter took me down, and I was worried because I find it hard to to walk. I ha- have a, a hip problem, so my daughter took me down, and I said, "Will she be allowed to take me up?" Uh, they said no problem whatsoever. So they took uh, she, she took me upstairs and it, it, I went to uh, Blackrock Hall, and which isn't too far away from me. And it was quite an experience. And it was everybody there seemed to be in a very happy mood. And I'd say there were about ten people waiting. They, they came after me and they were waiting to to have it done. And there, there was a smile on everyone's face when they came out. You know, it was it was great. So you have to wait then, uh, uh, just 15 minutes usual, but I'm allergic to something and so I had to wait half an hour. But they had a lovely place to sit down and relax and it was an enjoyable day in fact because I, I, I had a good experience getting the um, the vaccination, you know. They were very efficient and um, it was it was like, you know, <laughs> getting a present if you like, thinking of uh, the future because uh, if by getting the second one, I'll be able to, to go out, even if it's only just for a spin in the car with my daughter or something like that. Yeah, and has it been difficult not being able to spend as much time with your family uh, during these uh, COVID-19 restrictions? Well, I, I couldn't see. That I First of all, I had one granddaughter working in, in the Mercy Hospital, so she couldn't come near me. She did not come near me. She has got her second vaccination about, oh, I think about a week or so ago and maybe two weeks and then my daughter who is a midwife she's getting hers tomorrow so they, they have they, my daughter has been coming to me all the time and she, we, wear, we wear masks and she stays social distance in the house and she gets my groceries and all that type of thing and my other granddaughter will stays outside the, the house and she'll t- talk into me, that type of thing. But um, other than that, I, I haven't seen anybody else except my son. Other than that, I haven't seen anybody. But I listen to the radio and um, in the evening I might look at the television and I, I like to listen to, to um, uh, some of, of my CDs and things like that. So I, I, I occupy myself all right. And, um, you know, I'm happy that I, when they told me, the, my uh, daughter said, no way are you going out, no, mum, to be sure, to be sure. I don't want you for the sake of it. I know it's hard staying in, but it's to be, it's safer. So, in fact, I, I did what I was told. They said, told me to the first time in my life, I did what I was told. And I stayed in. So I, I'm happy now that I, that I've gone so far, but like it's a lot worse for people that are are isolated in the country and that. So I feel lucky that I'm in the city and that I could um you know uh, see people passing and that type of thing on a daily basis. So overall, a very positive experience with the vaccine. Anybody that would be nervous about going for it, they, they, I don't think they should be. You know, and it is, it is a great boost to yourself. That's the way, that's, well, that's what the way I felt. People have different, um, 
views, I suppose, on it. But uh, I, I thought I, I, I was counting the time until I could get it. Every, everything was relaxed down there. So it was, it was, it was a nice experience. And I came out with a skip in my step. You know, it was, it was, it was a good experience. And I didn't mind. I didn't mind it in the least. You know. All pains forgotten. There, a very happy Eileen Eileen McCoy talking to Killian Sherlock. This year's Leaving Cert students should be able to choose between sitting an exam and receiving a predicted grade. That's according to plans set out last night by the Minister for Education. However, both teachers' unions, the TUI and the ASTI, have expressed reservations about this hybrid system. In a couple of minutes, we'll be hearing why. First, though, our reporter Killian Sherlock has been getting reaction from students. He's been speaking to members of the Irish Second Level Students' Union, which has welcomed the plans. I think it's a massive relief. Um, I think just to know what's happening and to know what we're working towards and to know that we have that level of choice on a subject by subject basis. I think the biggest thing is we've been asking for clarity and choice this whole time and it delivers that. And I think going forward now, we need to work on ensuring there's compassion and that this is delivered properly and bringing students along the way. But as of right now, I'm extremely happy and extremely relieved. Dublin student Beth Doherty's relief was also shared by Wexford Leave Insert student Matthew Colgan, who said the impact of the pandemic has been incredibly difficult. It has been like incredibly difficult to engage with the likes of online learning and even a lot of times in-person learning. The fact that we've been online learning now for uh, almost two solid months this year and we missed most of last year as well. It's been extremely hard, you know, first um, we've lost three months in fifth year, we've lost two months now, that's about five months out of an 18 month course that you're meant to do across the two years. Academically, it's incredibly hard to catch up from that, especially if you don't have access to online learning at home. And even for myself, like the simple things like not seeing your friends in the corridor, not having those lunchtime chats, not seeing people, you know, not knowing if you'll even have a graduation ceremony, they seem small, I think particularly if you're out of school, but at the moment, it's very hard and I think from a mental health point of view online school is really tiring it's quite hard and then as well as with dealing with the pandemic and with the normal stress of the leaving cert that you have in any other year it is and it has been incredibly hard for me and I think for other students as well. While the Irish Second Level Students Union has broadly welcomed the decision on state examinations it has asked for more clarity on accredited grades, appeals and choice on exam papers. I'm nervous about the whole thing in general. Uh, it's never been done before. It's it's completely new. I, I don't know what to expect, you know, when I come in, maybe, hopefully when I get back into school in March, you know, what, what kind of trials and tribulations will face us then? Like, we've gotten clarity, but we haven't gotten all of us. We had an announcement. We know what we're working towards, but we don't exactly know how it would be brought about. There's been no specifics given. Um, So I don't think I'd be able to look towards the future without all of the information. Um, And I think the Department of Education needs to provide that little bit more information as soon as possible and not put it on the the long finger as such. And definitely not kowtow to the likes of the ASTI or any of the bigger unions. Like They need to centralise student voice in these talks. And Taoiseach Micheál Martin did state there recently that student voice is the most important voice but it needs to be shown in those stakeholder engagements. Leaving Cert students Matthew Colgan and Beth Doherty speaking there to our reporter Killian Sherlock. Joining us now on the line is Anne Piggott who's the president of the ASTI. Good morning. 
Good morning to you. We heard there that by and large students are relieved and happy. Is your union on board with these plans? Well, for a start, uh, we'd like to say that we're glad that students are relieved and happy and that they have clarity this morning. Our union always have had reservations about the system of calculated grades and equally so that remains. Now, having said that, we are glad that an alternative option of a traditional leading search is being offered that encompasses oral practicals and project work. Can you outline for us then what it is that concerns you about the calculated grade system being proposed for this year? Because that does differ from last year. Yes, it differs. Um, I think one thing that really bothered us yesterday is the fact that students will pick one of two ways of doing a subject. If they go for the calculated grades model, the trouble is then they won't be allowed to use their orals, they won't be allowed to do an oral, or they won't be um, assessed on their project work externally. And we would have liked some sort of external assessment. And I think at one point the students would have been in favour of that as well, just to ground their results and maybe give it credibility or even raise it up in a way if they did a very good oral or it is a very good project. So you want teachers then to be able to include marks from oral exams or coursework when they're calculating a student's grade? Well, they can do that, but they'll be doing it themselves. We would like somebody to do that externally. So for the students who are going to choose the traditional model, they will do an oral, they will do their practical, they will do their project work, and that will count. Now, similarly with the other model, the students will be given two separate marks. They'll be given a mark for the oral and a mark for the written work. But the oral mark will be estimated by the teacher rather than being assessed externally where there would be a a certain standard and everybody would have been marked relative to each other. Whereas with the estimated grade process, you'll have teachers in Mayo or teachers in Waterford all marking to their own standards with no set national standard. And that is a problem for us. Have you outlined these concerns to the minister and the department? Yeah, this, this was our uh, point at the very start. And we also outlined other problems in relation to the calculated grades model. You see, ideally, we would have liked an exam that would have been modified, that would have been very doable, that wouldn't have posed huge challenges. And then if that couldn't be run because of COVID, then maybe we could have gone down the estimated grades model. There, there are problems such as if students now decide they're doing calculated grades and everything, Will they be motivated? Will they be engaged for the next few months? How will teachers cope in the one classroom with two different groups? Probably a large group taking calculated grades and then another cohort going down the traditional route. For the calculated grades group, the teacher will have to keep collecting data, which will be more tests. And on the other hand, for the other group, the teacher will need to get the courses finished. And the other problem, I suppose, is many students will end up doing both which might be extra stress for them just as well. But having said that, if they're happy with the choice and if they're relieved, well, we're certainly welcome that this morning too. Right. So will you then, as things stand, will you be cooperating with this system? Well, we don't want to cause any more anxiety, but I can't speak on behalf of 18,500 members. We will start by consulting our executive and then work in consulting other members. Um, But there are other reservations then in terms of students who are being homeschooled who will provide their grade that was an issue last year they couldn't get one and they had to do their exam in the autumn uh, we're worried about grind schools where a student is doing a subject outside of school 
that might not be offered in the school. And somebody who is paid may then be um, coming up with a grade for that student. Also, there is no review on the process from last year. We await that, and that has not been published or is not available to look at the problems from last year that need to be uh, sorted out. Okay, so just to be entirely clear about this, will you be cooperating with this new system or won't you? Well, we will consult with our executive and we certainly don't want any more stress on students. But as I say, I can't, I can't say as one person in an 18,500 person union, but our union will not want to put more stress on any student. And will you be going wider than the executive when it comes to those consultations? I mean, is there a chance maybe that you would ballot members? Well, we, we will discuss this at the executive and see what we will do. And but when are you likely like to, to make that decision? As we know, students are under a lot of pressure and I know you accept that. So when are you likely to make a decision? We're going to consult in the next few days. Okay, so you should by next week have more to say on this. Yes, definitely. All right, Anne Pickett, thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. The recordings of interviews that survivors of mother and baby homes gave to a commission set up to investigate what happened in the institutions have been destroyed and can't be saved. The Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, told an Oireachtas committee that the Commission told him that they did not believe it was possible to retrieve the recordings. Many witnesses say they didn't give their permission for the recordings to be deleted and say the final report does not accurately reflect their experience in the institutions where women and girls were sent when they were pregnant and not married from the 1920s to the 1990s. The inquiry said that witnesses were told in advance that audio files of their testimonies would be deleted after being used as an aide de memoir for the report. The Commission on Mother and Baby Homes is due to be dissolved on the 28th of February. Dr Maeve O'Rourke is a lecturer in human rights at NUI Galway and co-director of the CLAN project that was set up to help establish the truth of what happened to unmarried mothers and their children in 20th century Ireland. Uh, Dr O'Rourke, good morning. Thanks for taking our call today. Morning. What's your understanding of, of how these testimonies were recorded and stored and then what happened to them? Well, this is the key problem. The minister asserted yesterday that he believes the commission. There's no way of recovering uh, what they destroyed. No one knows. How did they record the testimonies? How did they allegedly destroy them in July 2020, which is when they um, say they did? And what actual efforts and by whom have been undertaken to check whether across all of the computer systems, which uh, no doubt stored those 550 testimonies for uh, up to five years, um, what investigations have been done to check that actually they are not recoverable. So you don't know what, what type of recordings are? I mean, are these digital recordings where they stored on computers, on, on machines, or, or, or what they were, no? No, the Commission has not explained that in its report. It has refused uh, requests to come before the Iraq This Children Committee and the Minister gave none of that information yesterday. Um, and the key point about him saying, I believe the Commission, we can't recover these, let's move on, was that he was being asked by many of the members of the Children Committee to consider extending the Commission's legal lifetime beyond the 28th of this month so that the Data Protection Commission can do a proper, fully trained, uh, fully resourced investigation. 
In a letter sent to the committee last week, Mr O'Gorman said the Commission asked for witnesses' permission to record their testimonies on the clear understanding that they would only be used as an aid de memoir to quote for compiling the report and would then be destroyed. He said that while he didn't speak for the Commission, this approach was taken in order to protect people who wanted to engage confidentially with the inquiry. Well, again, we just see a bundling of every single survivor into the same category, and that is where the state wants secrecy from them. And so there's no information in the Commission's report as to what it means when there was a clear understanding. There was nothing in any of the information forms, the written pieces of paper that people received uh, before they went to interview in the Confidential Committee that said your testimony will be destroyed. That piece of information, uh, the form, said, we will ask your permission to audio record. And it said nothing about, number one, we won't actually keep a full um, transcript of what you say, uh, or number two, and we will destroy your audio without having created a full transcript. So, I mean, there are barely words to describe what has happened here. 550 survivor interviews to the confidential committee is the vast majority of survivor evidence given to the committee and how could anybody have anticipated this when section 43 of the 2004 commissions of investigation act says in bold uh, every piece of evidence gathered by a commission of investigation shall be transferred to the relevant minister at the end of the commission's work because of course part of the work of a commission under that act is to gather an archive for a minister to then decide whether there should be a tribunal in future. The minister also said he's written to the Attorney General uh, on the deletion of the tapes. He's waiting for a reply, or at least a full reply. He said it was difficult in the context of an independent commission for him to create a judgment at this stage. And that is exactly why uh, he should not be allowing the commission to dissolve and the Iraq this needs to immediately legislate to extend that commission's legal lifetime because we cannot say but I think it's pretty clear that it would be extremely difficult for the Gardaí or for the Data Protection Commission to fully investigate a legal entity that no longer exists not to mention that the people affected actually have rights which of course is the whole problem uh, in Ireland that they are never understood to actually have rights but under the GDPR this is prima facie a very serious breach of their data rights and they actually have the right uh, for example to consider suing the entity that did this and what the Iraq this is planning by way of allowing the commission to simply dissolve under the October 2020 legislation on records uh, is simply to allow that entity um, to go up in a puff of smoke and legally that's extremely significant. Dr Maeve O'Rourke thank you very much for speaking to us today. The Burmese army is tightening its grip on the people of Myanmar 16 days into the coup. The general seized power on February the 1st after they claimed that elections which returned Aung San Suu Kyi's NLD party to power last November were fraudulent. We can talk to Philip Sherwell who is Asia correspondent with the Sunday Times. Philip, thanks for taking our call this morning. Uh, the military have been holding a news conference. What have they been saying? Well, they've been um, they've been seeking to justify yet again their uh, their seizure of power. They've said they had no choice to take power. They're see- they're insisting that what everybody else is calling a coup was not a coup, but that they were merely acting constitutionally because of the issues of electoral fraud that they claim occurred in November that you just mentioned. Um, they have said that they will hold another 
election um, in a year or so and insisted they'll, they'll hand over power. Now, you know, this is, um, this is greeted with great skepticism by anyone who's sort of watched Burma over the last sort of 30 plus years. I mean, the military has held elections where they haven't held, handed over power in the past. And um, all the indications here are that they're trying to sort of prosecute opposition members and sort of dismantle the election commission and, and create a thoroughly rigged system. Now, also very significantly, we have just, um, there's just word coming in, Aung San Suu Kyi's lawyer has told Reuters that she will face additional charges. Now, she is the... Um, uh, leader of the NLD, um, and and she was arrested on the day of the coup. She's so far been charged with the very rather spurious claims of illegal ownership or possession of walkie-talkies, which were you know uh, communication devices that her staff would have been using to talk to um, other you know other staff members. But um, there has been a suspicion that the military will seek much stricter charges against her. They want to rule her out of having a political role in the country. They may well have be seeking to claim that she oversaw this electoral fraud that they claim um, occurred in November. So there's there's a lot going on as the military tries to consolidate power. Yeah, and what's the picture on the streets? Because hundreds of thousands of people have been protesting over the last number of days, but in the last number of days the, the military p- appears to have become more visible, uh, shooting rubber bullets at a rally yesterday. That's right. The, the, those huge protests, which were, were built up over um, about a week and a half, so it took place on Friday, which was a public holiday in Myanmar, and on Saturday and Sunday. Now the military have rolled um, sort of rolled tanks and armoured vehicles into the streets. They've um, they've deployed some battle-hardened troops who um, uh, uh, spent decades fighting ethnic insurgencies in Myanmar. And uh, the crowds on the streets are, are smaller. I mean, these are weekdays, but they're also much more strategic. They're not just sort of aiming for these big protests. They're really trying to um, defend certain institutions where government employees are on strike, um, railways, power plants. There's a movement by the opposition not to just try and sort of flood the streets with numbers, but also to try and bring the workings of the junta to a halt by, uh, by targeting civil disobedience in sort of key okay. sectors. Philip, we will leave it there, but thank you very much for talking to us this morning. Philip Sherwell, Asia correspondent with The Sunday Times. Well, for the past year, there has been one big story all over the world, the COVID-19 pandemic. In Ireland, the first death from the virus was reported on the 11th of March last. Yesterday, as we heard from George Lee earlier, we passed 4,000 lost to coronavirus. And throughout these months, doctors and scientists have been explaining to us what they know, what we're up against and how we can beat this. And one of them, indeed, the doctor who spoke to us on Morning Ireland about that first death of a woman in the East is Dr Mary Favier, Cork GP and member of the National Public Health Emergency Team. Dr Mary Favier, good morning to you. Good morning. No one imagined back um, when you were talking to us on Morning Ireland, Brian Dobson, about that first death uh, from COVID-19 in Ireland on the 11th of March, that by mid-February we'd be looking at more than 4,000 people dead. Did you? Under no circumstances. It's like we've all been living in something of a time warp. That, That first death was such a momentous time. It was so big. And here we are now, 11 months later, and there's probably hardly a person in the country who hasn't been affected by a death in terms of somebody they know. And indeed, three of my friends lost their elderly parents to, to COVID. And I've had four patients die. So, th- you know, this has come, this is death that's come really, really close. 
and we've just changed so much of, of what we talk and think about. Is there mm-hmm. a conversation that's almost about anything else except COVID? And we've learned to understand things like 14-day moving averages and positivity rates. Who thought positivity rates weren't to do with optimism? Or who thought modeling wasn't to do with the catwalk? There's just been a huge change in our language and the wearing of masks. And I myself have got to the stage where I sometimes forget to take the mask off. We've got so used to it. So a huge change in us both personally, professionally and in society. Very big. How has your world changed as a GP and a member of NEFA throughout this pandemic? Our, our world as GPs has got incredibly busy and it has had big impacts on our patients. It had big, has had big impacts on us as GPs. And to be, I think it would be fair to say GPs miss, we miss the patients because so much of our work now is done on the mm-hmm. telephone and, and the doors are closed and you come in by appointment with all the, the proper advice about infection control. And we miss the fun and the laughter and the chat and the children and that sort of optimism and hope that is is about dealing, living and working in your community. And we know we'll get it back. Vaccination brings a lot of hope, but it's brought a huge amount of changes. And we're just so admiring as GPs of all those healthcare workers who have trudged into work day after day. And all those people, whether it's the cleaners or the catering staff or the bus drivers who have gone to work in these circumstances, I mean, they're, they're real heroes yeah. and they've done a phenomenal job. And one of the big lessons of this has been how much we all rely on each other uh, and, and how much we relied on, you know, an invisible work that a lot of people took for granted. We've moved, haven't we, from, you know, the we're all in this together of last March to uh, the dreary depression now of lockdown three and knowing that it's going to be tough to get this down further and, and keep it down. But also yes. there's been a huge amount of resilience in that, hasn't there? There's been a phenomenal resilience by individuals, by society, and and for instance, even in our health service. Who would have known that that our health service and the HSC would do such a good job keeping it running and making it function in these extreme circumstances? And and people have shown extraordinary fortitude and solidarity. As a society, your institutional solidarity hasn't been as good. Our vulnerable, our socially disadvantaged, those with special needs, indeed mm-hmm. our children, ha- have, have not all been as well protected potentially as, as they might be. And, and there are lessons to be learned from this. But vaccination is going to potentially make a, a big difference and brings a lot of hope. What should we... What, what actually before we talk about that what's next this is ev- the thing everyone's wondering what's next winter going to look like what's next spring going to look like it's going to look better than this if we all continue to do what we need to do the, the future is going to be a combination of vaccination and that does bring great great hope and it's going to require con- you know social distancing and measures into the future we're going to need to learn to live with COVID in some fashion and adapt to it. And that's the challenge for next winter is what happens with variants? Does it impact on our vaccination schedule? And mm-hmm. it, it, they're, they're the unknowns and why we must be so cautious in what we change going forward. But there is optimism because of the introduction of vaccination. And as GPs with it rolling out this week, there's been some wonderful stories of, of the, the power of that uh, that tool of protecting people and, and liberating people again and it's great to see. And what do you hope that we take with us that's good from these dreadful times as we move hopefully into that uh, new normal, that, that phrase we didn't know before. Um, 
what what do we need to learn? I mean, particularly what you were saying about the institutional response. The, well, one of the things we've learned is the power of vaccination, and and that has been a great experience. And we've had some great stories out of general practice week this week. One, for instance, of two elderly brothers who hadn't met for eleven months happened to meet at their vaccination appointments with their GP yesterday. And the emotions of the brothers, the staff, it was just wonderful. And that is an institutional you know, infrastructure that's mm -hmm. being rolled out. But we do need to learn that our health service must be appropriately funded and structured, and particularly public health. None of us knew really, you know, as a public, what public health was. As general practitioners, we did. But those infrastructures need to be embedded. They need to be resourced. And they're still just trying to run, they're run ragged trying to make keep us safe. And those types of things need to be looked at. But we need to look at what underpins a lot of inequality in our, our, in our country and those impacts on health. And, and that is around poverty, that's around you know, inequality, it's around poor educational achievement. And we, they've been unmasked in this and we, we really need to pay attention to them into the future. Yes, and you, you know, while vaccines do bring hope, you know, we're, we are in the middle of this at the moment. There will be long-term consequences and it will be the most vulnerable in many cases who, who will be living with those consequences, won't it? And unfortunately, that is always the, the case, that the most vulnerable, the most disadvantaged you know, are always the most challenged. And this applies internationally as well as nationally. So we will have a successful vaccination campaign in Ireland, but it behoves us to, to donate some of our vaccines you know, to the developing countries so that they can also achieve the same health status as us. It's a pragmatic thing to do because nobody's safe until we're all safe. So Ireland has had a great reputation for charity and we're the biggest donors per capita in the world to, to international charities. And we now need to keep that up and frame how we will also donate right. vaccinations to countries that need it. Appreciate you talking to us this morning. Thank you very much to Dr. Ma Mary Favier there. The former chief executive of Anglo-Irish Bank, David Drum, was released from prison yesterday after serving three and a half years behind bars. Drum was found guilty in June 2018 for his part in a 7.2 billion euro fraud at the height of the 2008 financial crisis. Simon Carswell of the Irish Times is the author of Anglo Republic and he's writing about David Drum in this morning's newspaper. Good morning, Simon. Uh, we're coming up on the 13th anniversary of the so-called St. Patrick's Day massacre, which saw billions wiped off uh, the stock market. Will you remind us, it started uh, Ireland's lost decade really, will you remind us uh, of banking at that time and the role of Anglo, which was then headed by David Drum? Well, banking at that time was a, a time of chaos and Anglo-Irish Bank um, at that point was the third largest bank and David Drum, who was chief executive of the bank, had really driven the growth of Anglo to be that very significant player in the financial market. But in March 2008, this crisis started and uh, really began a run of deposits that continued right up until September 2008. And it was indeed the run in deposits that led to the scheme that David Drum was found guilty of. He was found guilty of conspiracy to defraud and false accounting. The scheme in September 2008 was designed to make Anglo look more financially stable than it actually was after that run on deposits that had lost billions. Um, and this was the kind of most severe point for Anglo-Irish Bank in its crisis in September 2008. And the scheme and involved money going back and forth, which made the bank look about 7.2 billion better off than it actually was in deposits. Anglo is no more. 
David Drum moved to the United States. It wasn't until 2018 that he was brought to trial. What happened in between? Well, he filed for bankruptcy in, in, in the US in 2010. He had moved there shortly after the bank's collapse in the middle of 2009. Uh, and he, he was involved in a very lengthy bankruptcy uh, case in Boston. And there was an excoriating ruling in that case where the bankruptcy judge said that he was not remotely credible and that his statements to the court were replete with knowingly false statements. But when he was eventually arrested in 2015, he resisted extradition and fought it for a period of time and he spent almost six months in a US uh, federal prison before agreeing to be extradited back to Ireland in 2016 to face these charges. And we then had a trial which lasted for 87 days. Now, uh, remind us about the sentencing because the judge uh, in her sentencing, uh, she was clear when she said uh, he wasn't being sentenced for causing the financial crisis or collapse. What was he convicted of? Yeah, she was very clear with Judge Karen O'Connor in saying that she, she wasn't responsible for the financial crisis and wasn't responsible for the recession, but was responsible for these two charges that she convicted him on, the conspiracy to defraud and false accounting. And she found that he directed this scheme, the scheme to bring deposits back and forth between Anglo-Irish Bank and Irish Life and Permanent. And she said that scheme was dishonest and fraudulent. She said the offences were premeditated and planned and that he was the driving force in the bank. So she put responsibility for that scheme directly at his door and sentenced him to six years in prison. He was released yesterday. He wasn't the only one who served time. He wasn't. Um, there were a number of other uh, executives, two others at Anglo-Irish Bank. Uh, Willie McAteer, finance director, David Drum's second in command, was sentenced to three and a half years in prison. John Bow, the bank's de facto head of treasury, was sentenced to two years for, for the same offences. And Dennis Casey, the chief executive of Irish Life and Permanent, was sentenced to two years and nine months. But David Drum was the most senior Anglo executive to be convicted and got the longest sentence. His six-year sentence was the longest of any of the sentences handed down to former bank executives at Anglo-Irish Life and Permanent. There were acquittals too, weren't there? There were. There were a number of acquittals and subsequent to actual these charges, um, David Drum himself pleaded guilty to other charges relating to authorising unlawful financial assistance uh, relating to the loans to the 10 Anglo customers which were organised by the bank to buy shares in the bank to unwind a high-risk investment for the bank taken by businessman Sean, Sean Quinn. And just finally, I wonder what now for, for David Drum? Uh, he was expelled, wasn't he, from the Society of Chartered Accountants? He was. He's a young man. He's still 54. Um, he was released from prison under a community release scheme which allows prisoners to leave prison in return for do, doing community service. So we will have to do a significant period of community service. Now, this scheme is open to prisoners sentenced between one and eight years and have served at least half their sentence. So he also could have qualified for enhanced remission of up to a third of his sentence, but uh, he will, for the time being, have to carry out that community service and that will be monitored closely by the probation service and he can be returned to prison if he reoffends or if he fails to meet the conditions of the scheme. Simon Carswell of the Irish Times, uh, many, many thanks for that. Well, this morning's news from Ulster Bank will be of huge concern to the bank's workers, but also to many of its customers. Our consumer affairs correspondent, Fran McNulty, is with us. Fran, as we've been hearing during the programme, the bank says no change today, any change will be gradual, but people will have questions today. 
They will, Rachel, and naturally people are concerned. This is a bank that has been around for generations and people are used to banking with them, so it naturally gives people some anxiety. And despite all those assurances, people still have concerns. We know it's not going to be quick. They're only saying multi-year process at this stage. It really depends on how quickly they can sell off parts of the business. The worst thing any a customer of Ulster Bank could do today, this week or next week, Rachel, is jump too soon. Don't move too quickly. If you've a mortgage in particular, you've heard everybody this morning mention this. If you're on a tracker rate at the moment, the last thing you should do is consider moving anywhere else because you'll have to negotiate new terms and conditions and you probably won't get the tracker rate. If you wait and you switch as part of the wind down of the Ulster Bank, you will keep the same terms and conditions, the same tracker rate, the same variable rate, the same fixed rate, the same repayments, the same term of your mortgage. So you should wait and do it as part of that managed transition. Where people probably should be thinking this morning, Rachel, is if they have savings in the bank. Now, many people have been going through a tough period over the last year, so the thought of savings is far from their mind. But there are a lot of consumers who have a lot of money in the bank. And in particular, Ulster Ulster Bank has very healthy deposits. This financial situation has changed so much that we're now looking at a position where we're going to be charged to hold money in banks. So the other banks aren't going to be looking to get your money, but they may look to get your current account and your loan business. And they will court customers over the next year or two, trying to win their custom over to the other main banks. But... Despite all of that, for uh, Ulster Bank customers, Rachel, it is concerning. I've been speaking to loads of them over the last 24 hours. One of them is Suanne Lo- Suzanne Lowell. She's in a hurla in County Cork. I've been with Ulster Bank since the mid-90s. I mean, I have such a relationship with them. They gave me my first car loan. I had quite a good relationship with the manager. I have a tracker mortgage with them. I have a credit card. They've been very good. I have my three children's bank accounts. I opened. When they were born, they now have debit cards. Um, This this whole thing is just a bit of a nightmare and I don't even know where to start. Uh, My concern is that my mortgage is going to be sold to a vulture fund. Uh, That's my biggest concern. And there hasn't been any communication to any of the customers, which, you know, I didn't expect. But there's also been no communication to the employees because I would know one or two of the employees of Ulster Bank just from going into the branch because I would go into the branch on a weekly basis. Uh, the branch now that's gone f- further and further away because, they, because they've closed so many and, tur- and turned them into mortgage advice centres. I just think the sad thing is to see Ulster Bank leaving is just less competition for Bank of Ireland and AIB and permanent TSB. Suzanne Lowell there and that's a significant question isn't it Fran the whole issue of competition we're already in a place in this country where there's relatively little competition between the banks this will just make matters worse Oh, it will. And and there is every indication that that is going to be the case. You know, we've seen some politicians talk about a new third force in banking. But the reality is we are now as consumers facing into a banking market with AIB, Bank of Ireland and Permanent TSB. And even, Rachel, the central bank have acknowledged uh, that the competition issue uh, with the banks is a problem. The Deputy Director of the Central Bank sent out a letter to Pierce Doherty, in fact, late last year, in which he said the exit of another entity from the banking system could contribute to upward pressure to lending interest rates. So we know there's a competition issue. And as consumers, we may look to the other banks, the other main pillar banks, but there are other options beyond that as well, Rachel. There are uh, online banks. There is, of course, the credit union movement. There are other options. And banking is not as traditional as it once was. So the advice to consumers this morning should be just read, inform yourself, 
take your time and don't do anything too quickly. Fran, thanks indeed for that. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.